Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together on a Wednesday night and study your word and then, and then look at uh, what's going on in the world. And so we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for the folks that are gathered here and the folks that are gathered online watching us tonight. Bless us uh, as we uh, study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, we're going to continue in the doctrine of rewards. We're going to go to the second crown, the crown of righteousness. And uh, remember, when we're dealing with crowns, the, the automatic in, in understanding crowns is that it gives the person the right to rule and reign in the Messianic kingdom. And like I have always mentioned, um, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're automatically going to rule and reign. Ruling and reigning with the Messiah is an active reward, not a passive reward. So everyone will be in the kingdom, everyone will be there, but doesn't mean that everyone will be able to participate in ruling. And then to really flush ruling out, what it means is that there's two forms of government in the, uh, the kingdom age, uh, the thousand-year reign of Messiah. You have the, the Jewish government, um, and then you have the Gentile government. And we, will, we, as Gentiles, will be part of the, the Gentile government over the entire world. Uh, the Jewish government is, uh, is pretty simple in the fact that Messiah is always king of the whole world, but then under him is David the prince, and then under him is the 12 apostles ruling the 12 tribes, and then under them are judges and princes, uh, of the Old Testament saints, uh, perhaps people like Daniel and Moses and, and people like that ruling under that, that strata. And, and, and then after princes and judges, we, we don't know how, how deep that goes. It, it just stops at princes and judges. So it's, it's pretty thick uh, there, uh, of lines of authority uh, in the nation of Israel at that time. The Gentile government is a little bit more straightforward in... Um, in its development, in the fact that obviously Messiah is over the Gentile government, and then under him are the rulers, uh, the kings. And depending on your faithfulness, depending on your, your ability to, 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 to have these crowns or multiple crowns or whatnot, depends on how large of a territory that you actually rule. And where I'm getting the large territory is the parable of the Minas, which we've already studied in the uh, rewards uh, study. So um, he'll tell them uh, in the parable of the Minas uh, um, that uh, you're faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler of 10 cities. Or then he'll say, I'll make you ruler of five cities. And so what you start seeing is an expansion of territory, expansion of dominion to that, that particular believer based on their faithfulness in the parable of the Minas. So, you know, um, you, if you get one of these crowns, then you will rule somewhere on this planet. Now, again, you know, the planet will be changed uh, topography-wise. Uh, the planet will be like the Garden of Eden again. And so um, you're not going to have the... The, you know, the parts of our world that are kind of ugly or desert or, you know, it has no vegetation. It'll all be, the whole planet will be uh, like the Garden of Eden, obviously. And you'll rule over whatever piece of territory Messiah gives you for that thousand years. Now, the thing about ruling and reigning um, is that you rule over who? Well, you rule over 
mortals that came through the tribulation who were believers. Because only, uh, only believers make it into the, uh, the kingdom. You must be born again. And so you'll have uh, resurrected individuals there, you and I, and resurrected Israel, obviously. And then you'll have mortals that, that made it through. You'll have two sets of mortals. You'll have Jewish mortals that made it through because they're believers, they're part of the remnant. And then you'll have uh, Gentile mortals that made it through because they're believers. Now, um, obviously the Jewish government rules the Jewish people and then we rule the Gentile people. Now, these people will come into the, into the kingdom mortals, which means that they will get married, they will have babies, and according to Isaiah 65, there's an explosion of, uh, of the population because there's no more infant, mor in infant mortality anymore. And so, and, and, and some of the curses, uh, curse is reversed. It's not taken away fully. And so uh, what we have is a massive explosion of the population, not only Jewish, but also Gentile to repopulate the planet after the decimation of the tribulation. So that being the case, after a few hundred years, you're gonna be up there in the billions again of people. And so therein lies our responsibility to rule and reign these uh, over these individual Gentiles that are having babies. Now, that first generation that comes into the Messianic kingdom are believers, okay? So because they're believers, according to Isaiah 65, they'll live for the whole thousand years and then be translated at the end. There's no resurrection at the end of the Messianic kingdom. The, the, the other people that are born into the kingdom have to come to faith in the Messiah just like you and I would have to come to faith in Messiah today. But, but theirs would be a little bit different in the sense that they actually see him in the Shekinah glory. So it doesn't take a lot of faith in that sense to, uh, to accept him, but it definitely takes a very bad heart to reject him. And so um, some, some theologians have said that's probably the one of the, those who reject Christ during the Messianic age are probably the most wickedest generation to ever live. Um, because they get to see full, full in front of them the, the full manifestation of the Messiah. So each successive generation uh, gives birth, and the rule, according to Isaiah 65, is if they do not make a decision for the Messiah in the first hundred years, then the penalty to that is death, physical death. So each human being is given a hundred years to live if they reject the Messiah. If they accept the Messiah during the probationary period, they live for a thousand years and are translated at the end. Um, and then those who die, obviously, will be resurrected at the, at the uh, second resurrection, uh, as it's categorically called, of the damned uh, after the Messianic age to the great white throne judgment. So when people ask me, like, well, well then what am I gonna be doing? We're gonna be ruling and reigning over these mortals. What is your job? Well, your job is to extend the, um, the uh, rod of iron rule of the Messiah. And the rod of iron rule is different than what you and I are used to. You and I are used to the age of grace. Um, we get a kind of a hint of it when we look at Israel living in a theocracy during the Mosaic period that, you know, sometimes when people did stuff, they died. You touch the ark, you die, right? You do stupid things, you die. You, you, you have capital punishment. You know, you're, you're stoned to death for certain things. So the, the penalties and consequences of sin, like in a theocracy, are very harsh, no doubt about that. 
because you're living with, with God right in your midst. Well, the same thing is true then with the rod of iron rule and the fact that the Messiah is living in the midst of Israel. And that means with the rod of iron, it means that outward manifestations of sin are not tolerated at all. And it's immediately put down. There's, there, there, it, it, and there's a penalty attached. So an example of someone messing around with Christ and disobeying him is the country of Egypt, uh, according to Zechariah chapter 14. What happens during the Messianic age is uh, Egypt, on one occasion, decides they're not going to come up to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is required for all, all people of the world to worship the, the Messiah during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, according to Zechariah 14, Egypt decides not to come up, and so the rod of iron rule sends them no rain, okay, and penalizes them for doing that. And, and, and at that point, you know, to send them no rain, I know that sounds counterintuitive because Egypt doesn't get rain today and, and is fed by the Nile River, but you have to remember it's Edenic conditions restored again, so there's no desert anymore and, and so um, the rain then is used to punish them for not coming up or at least sending delegates up to worship the Messiah. So it, the rod of iron rule is a fast punishment. It's an outward punishment of any manifestation of sin. Therefore, your job and my job, if we get to rule and reign, is to squash any outward manifestations of sin as we govern the region that is given to us. And... and uh, and, and, and really, ultimately, it, it, the, the Messianic kingdom is, is the best expression of how you can have a kingdom of righteousness and holiness with sinful humans. Because with sinful humans that have sin natures and they're still saved, they still want to do sin, sinful things. Well, in order to, to have an environment that's holy and righteous, you have, to, you have to put that down. You can't let that happen. And so that's what the rod of iron rule is. So you and I will be very quick on our feet to put those things down in our, our territory and region. We make the ultimate rulers at that point because we are righteous and we're glorified. And so we have no taint of sin. We can't be bribed as kings. Uh, we never need to sleep. We don't get tired. We don't get fatigued. All of our judgment is, is sound and in line with the Messiah. So we make the perfect vice regents for him because we will do exactly what we're told to do and there will be no margin of error whatsoever in our punishment or judgment of the Gentiles that get out of line. And so it actually is the, is the only, only way you could have a kingdom with sinful people in it if you had this type of scenario. Any other scenario doesn't work. It just doesn't work because you have to put down evil. And, and uh, as you can see, even in our dispensation, we, ha we call it the age of grace, um, people just get away with stuff. Even though they will be penalized later, judgment is delayed in this age. Uh, judgment is delayed to the end. And that's why we kind of see people get away with things right now, they think. Uh, but then, in the, the Messianic kingdom, people are punished immediately for what they did. They, they do get their just desserts. So, that's how to understand our function in that, that time era uh, in the future. So, you're wanna, you're, you want to be able to do this. It, it's a privileged position for the Lord. And um, 
it does, you know, anytime you serve the Lord here uh, in responsibility, it increases your responsibility later, but your responsibility is joyful and uh, you will want to do this. And so let's, let's talk about this crown of righteousness. This is the second crown. This is different than the, the crown of life. And there's five crowns. The crown of life we just looked at uh, over the last few weeks um, when I was here um, is the uh, crown given to those who suffer well. And it is only given to those who suffer well throughout their lives. It's not some, given to somebody that's ticked off at God, mad, bitter, and all critical and, and whatnot. So now we go to the crown of righteousness. So let's unpack the crown of righteousness a little bit. Uh, so we get our clue in 2 Timothy 4. Um, and this is Paul's departing words as he's getting ready to be executed. He knows he's going to be executed. And 2 Timothy is his, his last words before he dies. So he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And, and so the way Paul sees his life is that it's coming to an end. And because it's coming to an end, he's going to discuss what he has done to get this crown. Um, and so he talks about a drink offering, like a libation that would be poured out on the altar. It's being, his life is being now poured out as a sacrifice. So Paul, one of the aspects that Paul is trying to bring out to us is one of the ways that, that are variables that go into getting this crown is your ability to sacrifice. Uh, and and, and, and I'll, I'll get more poignant about this. It's not just simply sacrificing for sacrifice's sake. It is sacrificing for eschatology. Is that, that's where it's going because that's the whole entire context of what he's talking about. So it's a sacrifice that this person, that he or the person that gets this crown, has an element in them that is willing to sacrifice to eschatology certain behaviors, okay? I'll get there. So just keep, keep watching. That's why it means by a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. So Paul doesn't see death as a cessation of life. Paul sees it. The Greek word is like uh, lifting up your sail, uh, sorry, lifting up your anchor and setting sail. Um, it, uh, the, the other way it's, it's discussed, the Greek word, it can be used as um, uh, you're going to take down your tent. You've been camping, and you're going to take down your tent. And, and so he doesn't look at it as a departure. He looks at it as a, a basically a, a new adventure, so to speak, that, that what he's getting ready to depart as. And so at the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And you know those terms very well. Uh, those are famous lines from him. The good fight, obviously, is that he contended for the faith. He, he fought the good fight obviously, of faith. Um, and what does he mean by that? I, uh, well, he's, he, I have finished the race. Well, it's encapsulated by what he says, that I have kept the faith, okay? So, um, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, has to do with I kept the faith. It's, it's, it's the, those two funnel into this idea of keeping the faith. It doesn't mean um, that I stayed, I stayed true to the end. It doesn't mean that at all. It means the faith. That's what he's referring to, which means the body of knowledge of a corpus of basically the New Testament uh, or the revealing of the Messiah is what he's trying to say. That I have, I've kept the faith. You know, some people will say, well, he's, he's talking about the gospel, but I think it includes more than just the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. It includes the whole corpus at that point. 
Now, the book of Revelation is not written at this point in time, okay? And, um, and, and so whatever body of truth that, is, that he has, that he has written, which he's wrote, he wrote, uh, what, two-thirds of the New Testament, he is the main revealer of, of the Messiah and, and the church and, and how we function. So what he is saying is, look, I ran my race, and the, the way I finished my race is I have been able to keep this body of truth unadulterated and unblemished from false doctrine. I have stayed pure in my doctrine as I have committed that out to you in my writings and my teachings. That's what he's trying to say. So it, it doesn't mean loyalty. Even though Paul is loyal to the Messiah, that's not what he's referring to. He's referring that his job was to communicate this body of truth, and he did it. And that's why, why we have uh, Paul as, as the main, our main guy for understanding Messiah and the church. Okay, so in this corpus body of truth, it includes a certain aspect of theology that is typically, well, I shouldn't say typically, it is always, I should, that's the word I want to use, always neglected in church history. And, and when you study church history, um, the evidence of this neglect is, is, is all over the place. Like for instance, um, the early church fathers wouldn't, uh, wouldn't incorporate um, the book of Revelation for a very long time. Um, now, the remnant always accepted the book of Revelation but it, 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 the, the church, as a, in general, uh, the book of Revelation was like last to be incorporated. And there was resistance to it, uh, of being incorporated into the canon. Uh, obviously, it, it should have been, and that's not an issue. But for some reason, and, and I, I have theories on the reason, there was always a pushback, even in the early days of the church, of eschatology. Early eschatology, if you study church history, they'll, they'll, uh, uh, it, it was, it's premillennial. There's no doubt about it. And they believed in the imminency of the return of the Messiah. They were, uh, we call them Killianists or Chilianists, however you want to pronounce that. But they, they, they understood the thousand-year reign of the Messiah, they, uh, literally. Um, and so Killianism or Chilianism was a view of the early church, which believed in imminency and pre-tribulation. Pre and you can even make the argument that some of the church fathers believed in a rapture. Uh, and I think uh, Lee Brainerd has, has done a very good job in showing that here's, here's the early church fathers, in bo uh, you know, which we would call the rapture, uh, writing this down in their writings about the imminent return of the Messiah and, not con and, and that being a separate issue from the second coming and understanding that there's a, a tribulation period that must happen. And so it is not until Augustine that that gets all fouled up and really origin before Augustine that they start tinkering with eschatology and spiritualizing it. But so up until then, it was premillennial. Now, just let me make a caveat to it since we're talking about eschatology there is a straw man argument out there from the Reformed camp, from Calvinists, that dispensationalism was, uh, you know, and, and the rapture doctrine was drummed up by John Darby. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's actually a straw man argument. That's not being intellectually honest with the corpus of history that we know about the church age and about uh, eschatology. That's just a lie. 
And I'm sorry, uh, whoever says that John Darby is the one who invented the rapture is out of their mind. Either A, you're ignorant, or, or B, you know the truth, and so you're lying. There is no middle ground on that. Um, the, the rapture and dispensationalism all goes back to uh, as far back as to the Church of Antioch. The two, the two, the two schools of uh, thought in early church history was the school of Antioch and the Alexandrian school. And the Antioch's church, we would, you and I would fit very nicely into the church of Antioch because they took things literally. Uh, the church of Alexandria is where they started spiritualizing the text and brought in Greek thought into uh, their, their, their theological paradigms, and that permeated through Origen and then Augustine and into the Catholic Church and into Protestantism and un, under Reformed theology now that we have today, who does spiritualize eschatology. So when you see a Protestant today spiritualizing the book of Revelation, you can thank the Catholic Church for that because that's where it comes from. It comes from Augustine. It's Augustinianism. It's Origen. Uh, uh, as well. Uh, it's not, it doesn't come from the school of Antioch. The school of Antioch is more literal in its interpretation and ha always has been. Um, so anyway, so he, he says, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day and not to me only but those who, who have loved his appearing. And, and, and therein lies how to understand the crown of righteousness. I'll get to why it's called the crown of righteousness in just a bit. But as you can see in verse eight, he is including eschatological themes in his description to understand this crown of righteousness. So the first thing he says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. What day? The day when Paul stands before the Bema seat. That's what he's referring to, and he calls Jesus the judge, okay? And you don't typically see this in, in some of the texts that you read about Jesus, but he is a judge, and he will judge us. He will judge Paul. He will judge you and I. He is the righteous judge who will judge us at the Bema seat. So this is what Paul is referring to. So now we have an eschatological reality that Paul says, look, I am very confident I'm going to get this crown of righteousness when I stand before the judge at the Bema seat. Why? He will give it to me on that day, not only to me only, but to all, all, also to all who have loved his appearing. And the, the, that's the last phrase you want to focus in on, loved his appearing, okay? So loved his appearing is, is the, the idiom you want to capitalize on. That, that explains... The, in, the entire crown, loved his appearing. So obviously, the next, the, the, what we're all looking for as believers, hopefully all of us are looking for, but, uh, but unfortunately, and not a lot of Christians are doing this, they are looking for the return of the Messiah, okay? And, 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 and that's just in general. That's what a believer should be looking towards, the return of the Messiah, so what we understand about the return of the Messiah is that it's in two phases. And so, so the return of the Messiah is in two phases. The first phase is what we call the harpazo, or the rapture in Latin, or the parousia, which is the second coming, which he comes back to earth and rules and reigns. So just like the coming of the Messiah in general had two phases, so does the second coming have two phases. And, and this first phase, the harpazo, 
what we find out about it, once you, we, we understand it, and Paul unpacks it, and the writers of the New Testament unpack it, we find out that it's imminent. It has an imminent quality to it versus the second coming, the parousia. The parousia uh, is, t- is a timed out coming of the Messiah. How so? It starts with the signing of the peace covenant of Antichrist with, the, with Israel, and that starts a seven-year lunar cycle that culminates with the second coming. So if, if we were to theoretically live during that period of time, which we're not going to be here for the, because the rapture will take us, but if we saw the signing of that peace covenant, we would know down to the very day when the parousia will happen. Then, you know, or even take the three and a half year mark. Uh, when the two witnesses are raptured after they're killed by the Antichrist, you would know you have three and a half lunar years left um, until the coming of the Messiah. So the second coming is not imminent at all. You can never say it's imminent. You will know down to the, to the day when he comes based on the, on the seven year tribulation period and that being in concert with that. So what ended up developing in the New Testament is a two-phased coming, and the first phase is imminent, which means nothing needs to happen for him to come back, okay? And, and what was taught about this, this first phase was that it, he doesn't come back all the way to the earth. He comes in the clouds, to receive his his bride and then take them home for a seven year period of time for the wedding. And obviously at the wedding, using Jewish Galilean wedding language, when you take the bride back home, when you fetch her and she doesn't know when you're coming, you fetch her, you bring her back to your father's house and then you have the wedding inspection. And the wedding inspection is to, to uh, verify whether the bride is a virgin or not, and, and just, quite frankly, just to understand the, the context, is, is they had sex. And uh, the, the evidence that she was a virgin is that she would bleed out because her hymen was broken, because this was a virgin, and she first had sex, and so she would bleed out. And that, that cloth would be used underneath her as she bled out, and the first time she had sex, and then the, the, uh, the groom would actually take it out to evidence and show that she's a virgin, that she was pure. That's how the Jewish wedding went in the Galilean region, okay? For us, the purification of the bride is the bema seat. Uh, that's where the bride is made pure. That is where uh, those who built with wood, hay, and stubble uh, those works are burned, and the gold, silver are, are refined, refined, and then that's being kept. So our examination on the wedding night is the bema seat. So that's what he's referring to. Okay, so, so, so this loving his appearing then has to do with the, the first phase of the second coming, but it also includes all of eschatology. That's what we're talking about, because... If I understand that the first, uh, sorry, that the second coming has two phases, basically those phases encapsulate the not only last days of the church, but the last days of Israel, okay, before we go into the messianic kingdom. So it encapsulates everything. So 
it's not just, just for the rapture, it's for the entire eschatological period is what it's it's encapsulating because he appears twice. That's that's the idea. So when you hear me say it, that's I, I say. Well, it, sometimes I'll say it. Love is appearing. It refers to eschatology. I'm saying that because the 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 the, the second coming has two endpoints. If that makes sense. If that's clear. So anyway, it's it's the whole enchilada. If you want to use you know slang, it's the whole enchilada. So okay, those who love eschatology. What does that have to do with righteousness? Why is he connecting it? Why didn't he just call it the crown of eschatology, the crown of the second coming, the the crown of the coming of the Messiah? Why didn't he just call it that? But no, he calls it the crown of righteousness, but yet it's related to eschatology. Remember, crowns are very rare. Not everybody gets a crown, okay? Not everyone gets a trophy on this one, okay? As, As you know. Why is it related to righteousness? How would the study of eschatology be related to righteousness? Why is it related to righteousness? Now, the righteousness I'm talking to about is not positional righteousness. Positional righteousness is what you get at salvation. You accept the Messiah, right, as, as Savior, He imputes to you a foreign righteousness, the righteousness of his own, right? Takes away your sins, forgives you, but he imputes to you a foreign righteousness. So positionally, you stand legally, forensically righteous. But you're not practically righteous, neither am I. But I'm positionally righteous. What he's referring to is actual practical righteousness. So the crown of righteousness is a crown of practical righteousness, so how is practical righteousness related to eschatology? So the two, the two are coming together. And this actually uh, demolishes the arguments uh, that I dealt with a couple weeks ago with uh, Eric, um, what's his, Duma Flitchy? Metaxas. Metaxas, yeah, of saying that you know, those who believe in a rescue rapture are not politically active or politically motivated and they're, they're kind of sitting on the top of the roofs with their white sheets waiting on the G- Jesus to come back for them and so they're not politically engaged uh, or culturally engaged in the, in the battle. And it's actually a, the opposite of what scripture is actually teaching. So crown of righteousness. It also is related to this passage as well. This is 1 John 2, 28 through 29. And now, little children, abide in him. Now, abiding is not a salvation term. It is a discipleship term. Uh, that when he appears, remember, remember what did we talk about? How many appearances will there be? A two-phased appearance of the second coming. So now we know he's referring then to the imminent appearance, which would be what we call the harpazo of the rapture that when he appears at the rapture, basically, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So again, at his coming, we know inevitably it goes to the judgment seat of Christ, and he's saying, look, you have to keep abiding in him so that you're not ashamed when you stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. But what is that abiding relating to? 
So if I don't abide in him, which means I'm not fellowshipping with him, I'm not doing something. I'm not serving him. And if I'm not serving him, I'm not being rewarded. So in order, like I talked on Sunday about foot washing, in order to serve the Messiah, you have to be in fellowship with him. And if you're in fellowship with him, you can serve him. If you can serve him, you get the rewards. So, so he's, Paul is trying, uh, sorry, John's even trying to say, look, man, you got to stay in fellowship with him so you can get rewards. He, he's taking out the, the, the middle part, but we understand where the middle part is. It's, it's service. So you can have confidence that he will reward you and not be ashamed. So here's the passage right there. There will be Christians that stand before the Lord completely ashamed of their Christian life. That's just the way it is. And people don't like that. People want to say this is a, this is a uh, salvation passage. First John has nothing to do with salvation. It's written to believers. So salvation is not even the issue. The, the, the issue is abiding. Well, how do I abide? Obedience. Real simple. It's not having a liver quiver. It's not having a religious experience. It's not having a mystical experience. It's simply doing his will, what you're supposed to do, and you'll be rewarded for it. If you know that he is righteous, now notice the connection with righteousness, with the crown of righteousness. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now what is he trying to say? Well, he's saying, look, and you have to understand what he's saying. He's not challenging their salvation. He's not saying, well, you know, if, if, if you act righteous, that proves you're saved. He's not saying that at all. That's Calvinism. What he is saying is, you know that everyone who practices righteous, practical rights, they live a righteous life, is evidencing that they're born again, in, in that sense, and is evidencing that they have the new nature working in them, is what he's trying to say. It's not an evidence, per se, of, of salvation. It's an evidence of the new nature that they're born of him. The only thing, the, the, what was born in you was the new nature, and you're evidencing that new nature uh, by living righteous because the sin nature cannot practice righteousness. The sin nature cannot do righteousness. Only the new nature can do righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit and obviously the life of Christ, which is the new nature. So he's, he's connecting the two with the coming of the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ, and righteousness and abiding in him. Okay, so when we put it all together, Here's, here's the principles we're working with then at, that's, at this point. Loving his return has to do, obviously, with the desire to see the Messiah. That's loving his appearing, okay? So eschatology becomes the key subject matter of concern for this crown. But what does it do? Well, knowing eschatology produces righteous behavior in the believer because of imminence and because of the judgment seat accountability for rewards. That's what is the motivator for living righteous is that Christ could come at any time and when he comes, I have to stand before him and give an account. If that's not a motivator, I don't know what else is, but that's it. That, that kind of eschatology, that's what eschatology does in a nutshell. Whether I'm studying the kingdom, whether I'm studying the Antichrist or, or any of the subjects of eschatology, they will, I can always distill them back down to this. Christ is coming back at any moment and I have to stand in front of him. That's the whole point, okay? So if, if I have to stand in front of him and give an account and I'm gonna be rewarded or not rewarded, 
that will affect my motivation to live the kind of way he wants me to live. That's what eschatology does. Ah, now take a step back and let's watch all of church history and understand the subject matter of eschatology. Now do you understand why the devil does not want the churches throughout church history and even today to study eschatology? Do you now understand why the book of Revelation was the last book to be put into the canon? And why the attack today on eschatology is at a a hostile uh, 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 situation. They hate eschatology. The churches refuse to teach eschatology. They ref- uh, so the stats, I already can tell you the stats. 98% of the churches in America refuse to teach the subject. Only 2% will teach. Only 2% in America. Do you now understand the demonic reason why? Because if the devil can take eschatology out of the church, then the church doesn't expect Christ to come back and the church then starts acting worldly. The believers will act worldly. They will have, not have a sense of urgency. They will not have a sense of, I gotta, I gotta act right. I gotta get my, my life together. They'll say, there's plenty of time. I can be spiritually lazy with my life. And then they start acting unrighteous and unholy. Okay? Now, the contrast to this, and I'm gonna show you some other passages to prove my point and to prove Paul's point. The contrast is if you continue to read in 2 Timothy 4, he's saying, this is what I have coming to me, but then he contrasts himself with Demas. And he says, be diligent to come to me quickly, telling Timothy, for what? Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So that's the contrast. So uh, Paul apparently had a, a partner in ministry with him by the name of Demas. And Demas, instead of loving the appearance of the Messiah, understanding the Messiah could come at any moment, started drifting and loving the world. That's the contrast. So if, I, if I'm Satan, I'm gonna tempt the church to get away from eschatology so they'll drift into being like Demas and becoming lovers of the world. Now, if you go to these churches, many of them, like, say, let's take Joel Osteen's church, for example, or Rick Warren when he was active, or, or Bill Hybels, the seeker-friendly movements types of churches where there's no eschatology whatsoever. Uh, it's not even a blip on the radar screen. I can almost guarantee you what kind of believers you're gonna get out of that. If they're, even if they are saved, and some probably, many of them are not, if they are, some of them are saved, they're worldly. They're just worldly. Because there's no, I gotta get ready. There's nothing like that happening to them. And so they drift into worldliness like like Demas. Now, I'm gonna show you a a, a bunch of scriptures that prove the point that Paul is trying to make and prove that eschatology creates righteousness and that a lack of eschatology creates spiritual laziness and spiritual worldliness. Take, for instance, this passage as an example. But for that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my father alone. That's rapture language, by the way. Okay? It's a peri day that starts the Greek in there. So it's starting a new subject in Matthew 24. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know the flood came and took them all away. So also will, come, will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, so it, it, it's, it's perfectly in line with conditions before the flood and conditions before the rapture. Okay, so he, so he cannot be talking about the conditions in the tribulation because all hell is broken loose. So he's talking about the conditions uh, that, that they were going about their daily lives. They were unaware that a judgment was coming, okay? And so it, the, the two are connected. Um, and, and then he goes, verse, where am I at? 40. The two men will be in the field, won't be taken the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, won't be taken the other left. And that's a, I, I believe that's a, a reference to the rapture right there. Uh, watch, therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. Um, this day or hour, and you don't know the hour, that's related to the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, and the Feast of Trumpets, uh, you don't know the day or the hour when the moon will rise. So there's a two-day watch for the moon in the Feast of Trumpets. That's where that language comes from, uh, day or hour. You don't know the day or hour of the moon at the Feast of Trumpets. So he incorporates that into the rapture language. So anyway... Um, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, right? And not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Notice the warning. Notice that if he would have known that when the thief would come in, so he's relating his coming to a thief and relating to the high priest. Uh, as well, because the, the high priest was called the thief in the night. He says, you don't know when to expect it. So there creates an urgency there. So the warning is, you have to keep watch because I can come at any point in time. Okay, got it. Notice this. This is another passage. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Again, what are we talking about? We're not talking about unbelievers versus believers. We're talking about servants. Servants. Believers. Whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Ruler, ruling and reigning. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Notice that. What is that? That is somebody that's not watching for the rapture. That's someone that's not watching eschatology. That is somebody is saying, it's going to be a long time from now. It's someone that's ignoring eschatology. And begins, what, is, what, starts, what starts happening? He begins to beat his fellow servants. So this is what we call spiritual abuse. They start spiritually abusing other believers. And we see that with false teachers and charlatans, but we see it in the church as well. So those who don't understand that they're going to stand before Christ at any point in time, uh, at any second, possibly, start mistreating other believers. That's what they do when they don't think they're going to be accountable. And then when they, what else do they do? And to eat and drink with drunkards. So they start acting very worldly. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. Rapture language. And I will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites where uh, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what he's referring to is not going to hell. Do not think that weeping and gnashing of teeth has to do with going to hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is a Jewish idiom that means extreme regret. That's all. 
extreme regret for what you were doing. And then the idea in verse 51 that he will cut him in two and appoint him with a portion with the hypocrites means this person, this servant, who didn't, who didn't expect his return and therefore it, it, it lent itself to unrighteous living, especially beating other servants, treating, mistreating other believers, when he's before the judgment seat, will be cut in two by the Messiah. Well, what does that mean? Well, you don't want to take it in a literal sense. What it means is that the word of God, the word coming from the Messiah, will slice and dice that believer up to pieces in judgment. So basically, the person will get the biggest tongue lashing they have ever received in their whole life from Jesus himself. And then his penalty is he's assigned a portion with the hypocrites in the kingdom. What are the hypocrites? Who are the hypocrites? They are believers who did exactly what he did. They, they got saved, and they lived a hypocritical life. They didn't practice uh, practical righteousness and holiness. They got saved, and they lived worldly, which makes them a hypocrite. And in the kingdom, hypocrites uh, are assigned a certain location, certain things, and they're, they're not allowed to do a lot of things in the kingdom. So this guy, because of not watching eschatology and not living practically righteous, is assigned to this place in the kingdom. It is not purgatory or anything like that. They're excluded from a lot of benefits they would have received had they been rewarded. It has nothing to do with uh, salvation. It has to do with rewards. And hypocrites don't get rewarded. They just don't. Let's go to the next one. In the kingdom of heaven, we'll be likened to 10 virgins. Now this is a reference to Israel, but it makes the same point. Um, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. How I know it re refers to Israel is because it refers to um, the torch ceremony that happens after seven days of the wedding when the bride and groom make a public appearance publicly in, the, in the, the, their village. So this is the torch dance that they're doing. So this is referring to the second coming. It's referring, it's referring to um, Israel, okay? But it, it does make the same point. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took in their vessels with the lamps, oil in their vessels with the lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they slumbered and slept. Okay, there's the idea of not watching, okay? Looking for eschatology. And at the midnight cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins who arose and trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for your, our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should, be, uh, should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to, uh, to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in uh, with him into the wedding and the door was shut. That's talking about the, the kingdom. Afterwards, the virgin who came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. Uh, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So again, that the reference to Israel, but the application it, it can be made is the same for, for them and for us. If you're not watching, um, you're going to be, you're, 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 you're in trouble. You're, and then these, the, they weren't watching because they weren't filling their oil, and that refers to salvation. They, were, they, they didn't get saved. So it's a little bit different point, but still, it's the idea that they're not ready. Anyway, uh, Mark 13 makes the same point, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Again, that's uh, trumpet language. Not even the angels in heaven know the Son of Man, but only the Father. 
Um, take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know the time uh, when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch, which is a command. As you can see, there's the impression from the Messiah, keep looking at eschatology, okay? Look at this one, Luke 21. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts become weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. So this is what happens when you don't study eschatology. And that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all of those who dwell on the face of the earth, there's no doubt about that, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. And again, stand before the Son of Man is um, the only place where, where you're going to be safe uh, during the tribulation is actually standing in front of the Son of Man at the Bema seat. That's the only safe place to be, is standing before him. It's a position of judgment. So as you can tell, there's... There's the warnings, and the warnings show you what watching for his return does to the individual versus not watching and what happens to the individual. So it's very clear and very easy to make this statement. People who don't love eschatology in general will live an unholy, unrighteous life typically, typically. Not all the time, there are exceptions to the rules. Um, so it's not a blanket statement, but that's what the parables are teaching. That's what the impetus for watching does. It creates holy living and righteousness. So when Eric Metaxas says it doesn't, it's not his argument with me, it's his argument with every passage I just showed you. It's those who sleep and are not paying attention that start living worldly. There you go. So, Maybe that answers a lot of the other Christians that you run into and, and explains their behavior and their nonchalant about things and their, their indifference to things. This totally explains Laodicea to me. This explains Laodicea because Laodicea doesn't care. Laodicea is worldly. Laodicea is rich. They love this world. I don't. I hate it. And every day I live on this planet, I am reminded of how much I hate it because it's bad, it's evil, it's wicked. And I see people hurting, I see people sick, I see people dying, and I'm tired of it. And, and, but yet they love it. They, 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 want, to, they want to stay here. They, 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 they want to build some type of kingdom for themselves. And it's like, you fool. What kind of kingdom could you actually build for yourself here? It's nothing, everything is built on sand here. The, the, the next life is where it counts in the kingdom age, not here. So we're gonna do our work behind enemy lines, but I'm not gonna build my kingdom here. It's not mine to build. And I definitely can't build the Messiah's kingdom, so I can only store up treasure in heaven. That's what I'm going to do. So this connection then is now explaining to you why the church in America has lost its moral influence in the society. If you're gonna cut out a third of the Bible, then you have no, 
no motivator for your people. You, you, you're, you're without a motivator. So, so then tell me this. What kind of motivation does Joel Osteen give people? Is there a motivation that he gives at all for living righteous? No, no, because you won't hear that. What Joel Osteen talks about is living your best life now, building your kingdom. He doesn't talk about holy living. He doesn't talk about righteousness. He doesn't talk about sacrifice. He doesn't talk about that types, uh, those types of things that will get you rewards. He talks about things, so did Rick Warren, so did Bill Hybels and the rest of them, about the here and now, what makes my life an enhancement here. That's what they're saying. That's what the church in America and the West is now teaching. Life enhancement. How do I make my life better here? Well, good luck with that one, because it, it's gonna get really bad if I'm watching eschatology. Good luck. The minute they go digital on you, you're gonna lose about 40% of your wealth. The minute they start doing food rations, people are gonna die because they're destroying farming. You're not paying attention to that. You know, then that's the thing, I wanna talk to people. They say, well, you're doom and gloom. I'm not doom and gloom, I'm a realist. I'm watching what happens, and I'm, I'm called to warn you. Uh, and yeah, I, I wish I could tell you something positive. I, the positive thing is Jesus is coming back, I know that, right? That's the positive. But if I'm gonna put stake in, stock in this world, you're crazy. You, you're apparently not paying attention. And, and, and this is, you know, we have people that, 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 that talk to our people and, and it's all just doom and gloom. And it's like, well, here, let me ask you this question, Mrs. Doom and Gloomer. Um, if, you don't, if, if you don't like the reality in which you live in, what do you do in your own personal life? Are you just going through life with blinders on? You're not paying attention to what's happening? Are you ignoring what's going on in the schools? Are you ignoring what's going on in Israel? Are you ignoring what's going on in the, in the voting here? Are you ignoring, what's wrong with you? Oh, that's right, never mind. You're more worried about your life and your little cushiness and your security than anyone else's, right? Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly the, the problem. They're too self-absorbed because when you become worldly, you will turn like Demas and abandon the Apostle Paul in ministry. You'll think Paul is doing wrong. You really will. You'll think Paul is doing wrong because you're caught up in your worldliness and living your best life now. And, and here, that's the, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. So this explains a lot of what you're dealing with on the outside. And I know many of you have talked to me about this. And whether it's your family, whether it's your friends or other Christians that go to different churches and whatnot, I get it, man. But it's explainable. It's not a mystery anymore. It's right out here in plain sight and it explains why they have the attitude. Look, man, deep down inside, these people know they will stand before Christ and give an account of their Christian life. They know it, but they don't want to think about it. They don't want to think about it because they do not have the confidence to stand before him, as 1 John says. They don't have that confidence. In fact, they know if they stood before him right now, they would be ashamed at his coming. And hence, if you know you're going to be ashamed, then thinking about eschatology and the return of the Messiah is the last thing you want to put in your head. It is the last thing you want to think about. 
because you're ashamed. And you know you're going to get the biggest tongue lashing you ever did because he's going to say, what did you do with your life? You totally wasted it, man. They know that deep down inside. So what they do, it's a tactic that a lot of people do. If they don't want to confront the truth, they compartmentalize it, put it in a box and put it over there and never think about it again. And just never think about it. So here, here you come. And you come and tell them, hey man, did you see that Australia is getting ready to go digital currency, uh, not digital currency, uh, digital identification by July or August? Did you see that? Don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. Hey man, do you realize that we could have a black swan event in 2024 because of this next election? Don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. You, you know we possibly could see a civil war on our southern border because of what's happening down there? I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that 10 million illegal aliens have come into our country and, and, and many of them are from China and, and the Middle East. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Oh, you know, how, how about drive down the middle of Bakersfield and see the homeless population that they refuse to clean up? Oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Okay, then fine. That's what we're dealing with. That's what they're dealing with, with people that don't want to see us coming. Because if you do, you have to incorporate all of that into eschatology because those are converging factors of eschatology. What did he say? When you see these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near, right? So it's not a negative, it actually means you're getting closer, right? That's the whole point, right? That's the positive, so. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.